Oh man, what a great morning it's been already. Man, I believe somebody mentioned to me this week, earlier this week, that we're right smack dab in the middle of our whole story, uh, whole story reading plan for the entire year. We've uh, calendared it out where we're going to be in the Bible when we started all the way in Genesis. Uh, and this morning we're going to be in the book of Esther. Uh, but so far we've tracked uh, with God and his relationship with man. Uh, in the beginning, in the garden, everything was good, everything was perfect. Uh, But then we know that Adam and Eve, uh, they sinned and man's relationship with God was fractured. Uh, And so over the course of time, he began a relationship with this man named Abram and turned his name into Abraham. uh, And he covenanted with this people group named Israel. And so for the last several months, we've been following along with this story of this people group named Israel And that's where we pick up today in Esther. You see, this people group, Israel, they were Jewish. And they weren't necessarily always where they needed to be in their relationship with God. You see, for one minute, they would serve God and they had a good relationship with him and they worshiped him only. And then in the next breath, in the next few days or hours of their lives, they were worshiping idols and they tried to join the two. Eventually, over time, the nation of Israel was so uh, just wicked and perverse that they divided into two kingdoms. And Charlie mentioned last week about how one of the the first kingdom, the northern kingdom, uh, was overtaken by the Assyrians. And then the lower kingdom was taken over by Babylon. And last week we talked about Daniel after, you know, he lived in the time of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And then eventually Babylon is overtaken by Persians. All of their kingdom is overtaken by Persians. And a part of that group, the the Israelites that were taken and enslaved and captured in Babylon are now a part of this Persian kingdom. And that's where we get to the book of Esther. Uh, If you're a Lord of the Rings fan, which I know some of you might be, but you might be ashamed of it. I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan. This is your Silmarillion. Okay. This is like the side story. It's huge. It's so important, uh, but it's just so out of character with most of everything that we've looked at so far in Scripture. So if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give one to you as our gift. You can find it right back there on our Connect table. But turn to the book of Esther. And before we do that, let's pray. Father, it is your breath in our lungs. Lord, this is your time. And God, we just sit back and we just marvel at you and who you are as a good and loving Father. And Lord, we just expect you to do great things this morning through the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, now as we have your word open, Lord, I pray that our hearts and intentions are not about ourselves, are not about anything going on with us, but it's just to simply look at you and be amazed at who you are this morning. God, we ask you to do great things. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so if you're there in the book of Esther, say, I got it. All right, let's go. Let's let's go ahead and start reading there in verse 1. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast. 
for all his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Media and nobles and governors of the princes provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and the pomp of his greatness for many days. 180 days. Okay, so he's thrown a feast for 180 days. Like, I have a hard time taking a vacation for three, okay? So I can't imagine what's going on here. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, another feast, lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. And now he's going to describe just how glorious and how powerful the king is. Listen to all the things that he has there. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to display the for purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry marble mother of pearl and precious stones drinks were served in golden vessels vessels of different kinds and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king and the drinking was according to this edict there is no compulsion for the king has given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belong to Ahasuerus. So like I just said a little bit ago, this king Ahasuerus is a powerful, powerful man. He owns many, many kingdoms. He has a lot going on that he's in charge of. And so he throws this royal feast to just say, look at how good I am. Look at how powerful I am as a king. Now, you might also know King Ahasuerus as King Xerxes. That's his Greek name, Xerxes the king. And he come right after Darius, which we talked about last week. And so this is where the story gets good. This is where it picks up, okay? Verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bizza, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's demand, command and delivered by the eunuchs as this the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. So he's throwing this party and he says, look at how great I am. But then he asks for his crown jewel, Queen Vashti, who was beautiful to look at. Come in, so to be on display for everybody to look at. And of course, she knows what's going on here. She knows that there's probably hundreds and hundreds of men here. And she says, no, I'm not coming. I'm not going to put myself on display. And the king becomes enraged at this. Who do you think you are? I am the king. Don't you see my greatness? And it goes on to say that as the king sits there and he thinks about this, he says, well, all the other women of my kingdom will see how Vashti has treated the king. And if they see how she has treated someone like the king, then all the wives of the husbands will just overtake them and no, one will have, no man will have respect anymore. And so this is where the kingdom kind of shifts and it turns. And in his anger, he says two things. Listen, Vashti, because you will not come before the king, you never again have the right to come before me. Never again do you have the right to come before the king because you have refused me this time. And secondly, more importantly, 
you are no longer queen. Vashti, you have lost your right because you have not obeyed Xerxes. And so he kicks her out of the kingdom. Kicks her out. And so because of this, he sits back and he says, we've, we've got to replace Queen Vashti. We've got to replace her. And so he writes out with his royal edict and he declares with his, he says that it, it, he declares it with the signet of his ring that she is no longer queen. And once a law becomes a law, it can never be overplaced. It can't just be undone. Once it's a law and the king's signet ring is pressed on that, it's done. It's law, period. And so he does that and he says, we need... We need to find a new queen, right? We've got to find somebody to replace Vashti. And so he holds this, basically this uh, beauty pageant, this beauty contest, and he says, let's take all the beautiful young virgins in my kingdom, and let's, he basically takes them by force into this beauty pageant, and that's where we meet Esther. So if you're flipping over, this is kind of like part three. This is where we meet Esther in this beauty contest. Esther 2 verse 5. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. That's a, that's a hard way of saying he was a part of the Jewish nation and he was taken to Babylon and now he's part of Persia. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So they're cousins, but she's kind of an orphan, so he takes her in and he's her guardian. Verse 8, So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, this Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day that Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Did you catch that? Okay, she's brought in before the king in this beauty pageant of sorts. It's not a choice. And it's, the Bible says that she is beautiful, more beautiful than just about all the other women. But there's a key to all of this. Mordecai advised her, don't tell anybody that you're Jewish. Don't tell them that you're a part of this Israelite clan. Don't tell them because it won't go well for you. So let's, let's see what happens here. Verse 12. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of her beautifying, six months with oil and myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young, young women went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. 
In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shaskaz. I might have made that up. That might not be how you pronounce that. The king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines, she would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. Verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, had char- who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther, the Jew, more than all the other women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the other virgins. So that she, so that he set her the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. So now we have Queen Esther. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission for taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. So Esther has become queen. She was at the bottom of the totem pole in society, a Jew, an orphan, so to speak, and Now she is queen because of this beauty contest. And the king Xerxes says she is more beautiful than all the other women. And he had favor on her. And she is elevated to this place of queenship. And so as time passes on, Mordecai, he hangs around this kingdom because he wants to know how his cousin's doing. You know, how is the king? Everything going all right? And one day, Mordecai overhears two of the king's officials. They have this conversation, and it's not a good conversation because they're planning to assassinate King Xerxes. They're planning an attack to kill the king and to hopefully replace him. So Mordecai overhears this plan, and doing the right thing, he goes before King Xerxes, and he makes him aware of this plan. He says, hey, there are two of your guys. They're planning to assassinate you. Watch out. The king investigates the plan, finds out that it's actually true, and guess what happens to Mordecai? Nothing. He gets no reward, no favor, nothing at all for protecting the king from being assassinated. It says that he simply just goes back out into this little square that he's out right outside the king's palace. But it does say, the Bible does say that the king wrote these things down in the book of Chronicles so that it could be remembered for time later. And that's where we pick up again in verse in chapter 3. Chapter 3. It gets good. I'm telling you, this is an amazing, amazing story. Chapter 3, verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him. Get this. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Something fishy going on here. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. 
But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. means he doesn't want to hurt just Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all of the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So there's this guy named Haman, and he's second in command only to King Xerxes. And the Bible says that the king had to command people to bow to Haman, which is really weird because in this culture, naturally you would just bow to anybody that was superior to you. You would just bow. If, if somebody more important than you walked by, you would bow. But for Haman, it appears that they wouldn't necessarily bow for him, so the king had to make a special order that if you see Haman, you better bow. He must not have been that much of a respected guy. And this Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman. He refuses, I will not bow down to Haman, even after it's been a command by the king. And so Haman devises this plan in his pride and in his hatred for Mordecai. He says, he won't bow down to me. And in his, in his angst for more power and more pride, he says, not only do I want to kill Mordecai, I want to kill all of his family. I want to kill all of the Jews, all of them. Now, remember, this is God's people, right? This is Israel, who we've been following all along for many, many years. We've been following this Israel, and now they're under peril. They're under doom. And it says that Haman goes before King Xerxes, and he says, listen, here's my plan. There's this guy, Mordecai, and he won't bow down to me. I want to kill all of the Jews. And so he pays this sum of money so that all of the Jews and all of Xerxes' kingdom could be exterminated. And the king takes his signet ring and he presses it. And so it's law. And remember what what we said about the, the signet ring. Once a law becomes a law, it can't be undone. Verse 12. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. And an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials and the peoples in the name of King Ahasuerus. There it is. And sealed with the king's signet ring. It's law. And it can't be undone. Letters were sent by carriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill And to annihilate all Jews. This is basically a holocaust before the actual holocaust. Young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the document uh, of the 12th month, which was the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. So this is about 11 months out. You've got 11 months. And 11 months... All the Jews are going to be annihilated. The carriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was just thrown into this confusion because of what the law had said now. So what's going to happen? What happens to Mordecai because of his actions? Can you imagine like just having the best day of your life and you stop the king from being assassinated, 
And then like the very next day, you have the worst day of your life because you refuse to bow down to Haman and like all of your family is going to be killed because of that. That's exactly what's going on here. He had the best day of his life and now he has the worst day of his life. And remember what we said about Esther. She has not revealed that she is Jewish. She has not revealed that this is all of her family that's going to be killed and destroyed. So it's kind of this secret right now. And the King Xerxes has no idea of, of Esther's true identity. So Mordecai, doing the only thing that he can do, he goes and he finds Esther and they start up this conversation. Listen, this is what's happening. We're going to be all destroyed. Only you can save us, Esther. You're in the kingdom. You're the queen after all. Only you can save us. And that's where we pick up in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 5. This is a conversation between Esther and Mordecai. Verse 5. Then Esther called for Hetak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been anoint, appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. So this is kind of like a messenger going back and forth to Mordecai and Esther, cousins here. And Mordecai told him all that, it, told him all that had happened to him. And the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction so that he might show it to Esther. And explain it to her and command her to go to the king and beg for his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hethak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hethak and commanded him to go back to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside this inner court without being called, basically stepping up in a place that they don't necessarily have any business being. So going there without being called is bad news. There is but one law, and that is to be put to death, except for the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter sue so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called. How can I go speak to the king if he hasn't called me? I can be put to death for this. For I have not been called to come in in these 30 days. Let's keep going. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. And then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Listen to this. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. Meaning that you're going to die for this too. You're a Jew, remember? If you don't make this known, if you don't do something about this, Esther, you're a part of this. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Who knows, Esther? Maybe you were brought here. Maybe you were chosen for a time just like this. To save us, to save all of our family. Maybe it's, maybe it's not coincidence. Maybe you have a purpose in being here. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, 
and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king. She's going to gain the courage to go before the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything that Esther had ordered him. What hope do Esther and Mordecai have? What hope do they have? What hope do any of the Israelites have? If she goes before the king and the king doesn't have favor on her, then she's put to death and then all the Jews are exterminated, period. Done. What hope do they have? And so she devises this plan. She gains the courage and she goes before Xerxes. And sure enough, he has favor on her because she is beautiful. And she just has this presence about her. And he lowers the scepter before Esther. And she comes in and she says, she devises this plan. She says, King, let me throw a feast for you. I want to throw a feast for you. And also bring Haman, who is second in command. And so later on in that day, they go to this feast that Esther has planned. And he says, well, what do you want? What is your request? And Esther says, I'm not going to tell you what my request is. Rather, let me throw you another feast tomorrow. Let me throw you another feast tomorrow. And at this second feast, then I will tell you what my request is. You kind of see what's going on here? Like, men, if you want something really, really nice from your wife, you have to do a lot of buttering up and something like that. Okay, that's exactly what's going on here. Maybe you don't know. I don't, maybe you just get along greatly. So that's exactly what's going on here. She's trying to butter up the king. And so she invites him to this feast and says, bring Haman. And she gets there and says, oh, I got another feast planned for you. Come to that feast too. And so she's got it planned for tomorrow. This is going to happen. And then our story takes another big twist, plot twist. As Haman is leaving this first feast, he's walking out and guess who he runs into? His mortal enemy, this Mordecai. And he still refuses to bow down before Haman. He won't do it. And so Haman just burns with anger. You know what? I know that I made this plan for many, many months in advance, but I've had it. I'm going to hang this Mordecai in the morning. Like, and he goes and he has this gallows built just for Mordecai. I can't imagine the amount of work that went into building a whole gallows just for one dude. But he spared no expense and he spared no work so that he could have Mordecai hung in the morning. So Mordecai, he's doomed. He's going to be killed in the morning for his actions of not bowing down to Haman. And then in chapter 6, something huge happens, something huge huge, that we did not see coming. It says the king is up one night, King Xerxes, and he can't sleep. And so he happens to just go and look at this book of chronicles of all the things that have been written in his kingdom. And he reads over it like, I'm going to try that. Like whenever I can't sleep one night, I'm just going to go and open up a yearbook and see what all is going on. But he can't sleep and he opens up this book of Chronicles and he, he has someone read it to him. And as they read, they remind him of this Mordecai that saved his life from being assassinated. And the king stops and he thinks about it and he says, did we ever do anything for that guy? Like he saved my life. Did we ever like honor him or anything? Did we ever do anything for his life? 
And they say, no, king, we didn't do anything. And so Xerxes says, well, we've got to honor this guy. And so he comes in the next day in the morning, whenever Mordecai is supposed to be hung by Haman, the king places him in a, in a seat of honor. And he says that he has Haman come in and Haman puts the king's robe on Mordecai and puts him on the king's horse and parades him around town for everybody to look at Mordecai and say, this man is a man of honor because he saved the king's life. Can you imagine being Haman? Like you're expecting to put a noose around Mordecai's neck the next day. And instead of putting a noose around his neck, you're putting the king's robe, which you've probably never even touched around his neck. And instead of leading him to the gallows, you're leading him around the city for everyone to honor him and say, this is a good man. He saved the king's life. Can you imagine just how burned with anger Haman is at this? I was going to kill that guy. And now we have him in a place of honor. And the best part about it is that Haman is the one that has to do it. Imagine that. It doesn't end there. It doesn't end there for Haman because guess what? He had that second feast plan, right? He had that second feast. And so he, he gets done with all of that and he's mad. And he walks into Esther's second feast. And it says that while they're there... King Xerxes looks at Esther and he says, okay, what is your request? What do, you, what do you want from me? And so this is where Esther reveals her plan in chapter 7. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second, uh, and he says, on the second day as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And whatever is your request, even to the half of my kingdom. You can have even to the half of my kingdom. That's how much favor that Esther had with King Xerxes. Then Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted to me. Let my life be granted to me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed and to be killed and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not compared with the loss to the king. And so he's got no idea. What are you talking about? She says, here's my request, king. I and my entire family are going to be annihilated. I am actually Jewish, King Xerxes. And there is a man who has sold us and who's going to annihilate us. And King Xerxes burns up with this. What do you mean? Who is trying to annihilate my queen, Esther? Who is trying to kill my queen? And she says, it is Haman. He says in verse 6, and Esther said, a foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Because he had tried to kill Esther's entire family, annihilate Esther's entire family. And the king in this moment, he chooses his beautiful queen, Esther, over his second in command. And instead of having all the Jews killed, he has Haman hung in the same gallows that he was going to kill Mordecai with. He has him put to death. And our story gets even better. So Haman is hanged, and then all, the, all of his wealth and all of his, all of his prosperity is then given to Mordecai and Esther. 
But remember, there's still a problem with all this. Remember what we said about the king's signet ring, that once it goes down on something, what do we say? A law is a law, and it can't be overturned. It can't be undone. And so they have to devise this plan. In 11 months now, or or in months to come, the Jews are still going to be annihilated because it's still in the law. Haman is gone, but the law is not. And so they devise this plan. They say, you know, it can't be undone, but what, what we can do is create a new law. What we can do is create a new law. And so Mordecai comes up with this law that, hey, whenever anyone comes to attack these Jews in the day that it is to happen, when anyone comes to attack them, the Jews have the right to protect themselves. The Jews have the right to fight against anybody who comes. Now, remember this Israelite people group, we've, we've been with them for some time, and we know that they know how to scrap. They know how to do battle. So this is not necessarily a people that you want to mess with. And so he, the king takes his signet ring, and he hands it to Mordecai, and he presses it, and he sends it all, all, all the provinces, and there's one law that says, You can annihilate all the Jews. And on the other hand, there's another law that says, Jews, whenever you come, when you're about to be attacked, you have the right to protect yourself. So what is this? This is warfare. And all the king's provenances and all of his kingdom, this is like designated warfare for those that hate the Jews and want to attack them, for the Jews just trying to survive. And that's where we pick up in chapter 9. And this is beautiful. The king's signet ring press. 9, chapter 1. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, this is the day that it's all going down, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over him, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Remember, they know how to scrap. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all of the peoples. No one could stand against them. God's people made it through this supposed annihilation, they made it through. They made it through and they survived. Now let's take a breath. All right, let's let's pause here. Why in the world would I tell you the story of Esther this morning? Some of you might be sitting in your seat and asking, why in the world are we spending so much time here going throughout the book of Esther? It's a good story, granted, but how's it going to change my life? Let me ask you this. The nine chapters, the ten chapters of this book, did you ever see God mentioned anywhere? Did you ever see, and the Lord did? Did you ever see God mentioned or angel of the Lord mentioned in the story of Esther? Maybe even in your reading this week, you notice that God's never mentioned one time in the book of Esther. He's not mentioned once. This is the only book of the Bible where God is not mentioned. This is the only book of the Bible where God is not mentioned. Now let me ask you this. Was God at work here? 
Was God doing anything in this book? Or was he absent? Was all this just happenstance? Was it just coincidental? Everything that happened? Was God involved? Or was he absent? He's not mentioned. Maybe that means he wasn't there. Of course not. Of course not. Let's just run through the coincidences one again. Let's run through these coincidences. King Xerxes is throwing a party and just so happens to get drunk and call Queen Vashti. Queen Vashti just so happens to refuse the king and lose her queenship. The king just so happens to find Esther, the most beautiful of all the other women. Mordecai just so happens to hear about this planned assassination. Xerxes just so happens to remember that Mordecai saved his life. The king Xerxes just so happens to lower his scepter down in front of Esther so that she might come before the king. And the Jews just so happen to withstand all of their attackers. Now I'll ask again, was God active in this story? Was God involved in this story? With a resounding yes, God was here in this story. He prevented all of his people from Genesis up until now from destruction. He was actively involved in the intricate details of everything about this story. He was actively there. What is God doing behind the scenes of your life? What is God doing behind the scenes in your life, your day-to-day life? What is he doing? My favorite pastor and author, John Piper, says this, and it just blows my mind every time he says it, that God is always doing 10,000 different things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. God is always doing 10,000 different things in your life, and you might be aware of three of them. And on a grander scale, not only what is God doing behind the scenes in your life, but what is God doing behind the scenes in our world? If he's doing 10,000 different things in our life, just imagine the millions upon millions of things that God is doing in our world. And we read the headlines and it saddens us, but God is not absent. God is actively involved. Cheer up, my brothers and sisters in Christ. He is involved. He has not left us. And he is doing a thousand different things in your life and millions upon millions of things in our world, all to point to him. I can't even begin to tell you all the things that God is doing in your life. I can't tell you the thousands upon thousands of things that he's doing in your life. I can't even tell you what he's doing in my life. But I can say this, that he is at work in your home for his glory. Parents, your children, he might be working in their hearts right now to grow them up to be strong oaks of righteousness for his name's sake. In your marriage, your marriage might be on display for thousands upon thousands of people to see the goodness and the glory of God. He is at work in your job for his glory. 
Your profession and your career and your place of work is not just for you to make a quick buck. It's not even for you to leave a legacy. Not in that sense of the word, but it's for you to be about God's work. What is he doing at your job for his glory? What is he doing in your neighborhood for his glory? Do you see your neighborhood as a missionary field? Do you see your neighbors as souls who need to hear the gospel? He's at work in your neighborhood. God is at work in your relationships with your friends for his glory. Do you have people who don't know this good news about Jesus who need to hear it? God is at work behind the scenes in all of these different things of our lives. And no matter what he's doing, he's doing it for two things. He's doing it for his glory so that he might look good and be on display, but he's also doing it for our good and for our benefit. Romans 8.28 says, Now for those who love him, all things work together for good. For good. For those, according, for those called according to his purpose. And what Romans 8.28 tells us is that He's called us for his purposes, and all those things work out together for good. All those things work out together for good. And no matter what it is, no matter where it is, all of us, ordinary people just like Esther, God wants to use us for his glory. He wants to take our stories and use them and spend them for his glory and for his name to be lifted high where it is not. Amen? He wants to use you. Now we know that God does all things for his glory and we know that he was actively involved in the story of Esther. So where do these two meet? Where do these two meet? God does all things for his glory, right? Yeah, absolutely. But he's actively involved in the story of Esther. So where do these two meet? How is Esther all about God's glory? How is Esther all about God? Well, we've talked about it earlier, that this people group named Israel had a special relationship with God. And he took care of them. He provided for them. He says, I am your God. Have no other gods before me. And they worshiped and served him a lot of times. And so whenever he saves them right here, he saves them for his glory in this way. Hundreds of years after this event, a baby is born from this Jewish people group. And this baby grows up to be a man named Jesus, who came not to save them physically, but who came to save their souls. Jesus came out of this story because the Jews are preserved here, because their lives are spared here. Jesus is able to be here. If all the Jews were exterminated here, well, sure, absolutely, God would have come up with another plan, but he didn't. And so Esther is a story about Jesus. It's about historically how the Jews are spared in order for Christ to come and save their souls, to save our souls. And so whenever Jesus comes later on and he dies on the cross, what Jesus is doing for us is he's acting like Esther. You see, he goes before God on behalf of a people group who are desperate for hope. 
who are desperate to be saved. And without Jesus acting as our Esther, going before God, the King, none of us would have hope. Jesus is a better Esther who goes behalf of the most important and who sacrificed himself for all of us so that we might be spared for his glory. Jesus is a better Esther. Now, if you're in this room this morning and you do not have a personal relationship with this Jesus, let me tell you what that's like. That's like being a Jew in the story of Esther without Esther. Doom is coming. Without Christ, there is no satisfaction in this life. There is no rest in this life. And we believe as Christians that apart from Christ, without faith in Jesus and his rest and his, resting in his work on the cross, that we are like Jews without Esther, we stand to be condemned before God one day. And without Jesus, we will not spend eternity with God. So are you in this room this morning without a relationship with Jesus? Do you have faith in Christ to save your lives now, but also for eternity. Without Christ, there is no hope. Christ is our better Esther. This morning, I hope and pray that this has been just a graphic image of how on one hand, we celebrate and we feast and we are merry because we have a Savior that is Christ, pictured in Esther, versus what it's like to have doom over our heads with no hope in the world. And that is what life is, what, what life is like without Christ. And so this morning, I hope that you would not delay and that you would not leave this place without having a relationship with Jesus, without asking him for faith to change your life and to make it different. As the band comes to play this morning, we're going to have a team of pastors over here on our left-hand corner. And listen, these folks are here for, for two or three reasons. And one is just to help you pray, pray for you over your lives. And to ask God to give you the strength that you need. But also for those who don't have a relationship with Jesus, they're here to tell you about that, to help you through that, to share Jesus with you. And how in their testimony, Jesus saved them. That's what that team is for. And I pray that this morning you would not leave this place without a relationship with Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you this morning for being the better Esther. We thank you this morning that just how you were actively involved in their lives, you're actively involved in ours. You orchestrated a plan to save not only the Jews, but to save all of our souls through Christ and through having faith in his work on the cross. Lord, I pray for those who may not have a relationship with you, who all of this might be new. God, and I pray that you would work in their hearts, give them the courage to stand before their peers and maybe even family and confess their need for you. God, we just, for the rest of us who 
who have a relationship with you, Lord, we just sit back and then we admire your handiwork on display in Esther. We admire your handiwork doing 10,000 different things in our lives. God, and I pray that this morning we would just rest in your work. We would look at you in a different light. We would fall on our faces and we would worship the powerful God that you are. Well, may you get the glory for everything that's said and done. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, can I ask you to stand up?